This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I practice law in Salem, Massachusetts, and we focus on workers' compensation cases in our practice and also here on Workers' Compensation Matters. As you know, and if you've listened to any of our other shows, you know there are many types of workers' compensation cases. Today's program, we want to talk about representing the federal employee in cases before the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs. And to do that, I'm very pleased to have in our studio Attorney Daniel Shapiro. Dan uh, practices at Shapiro & Associates here at Two Center Plaza in Boston, and his practice concentrates in um, litigation practice and federal employee representation. Dan has been lead trial counsel for both plaintiff and defense in several major trials, including professional malpractice, wrongful death, premises liability, products liability, and motor vehicle accident cases. He oversees all aspects of preparation and presentation of expert testimony in specialty areas such as medical, accident reconstruction, code compliance, human factor engineering, and consults with litigation practice and professional malpractice group attorneys on unique and novel pre-trial and trial preparation issues. Dan, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thanks, Alan. Well, we want to talk today about federal workers' compensation, and I've been handling workers' compensation cases for about 30 years, representing, for the most part, injured workers and their families. And my practice, like the vast majority of attorneys, is a state-based practice. I practice in Massachusetts, and we handle cases before the State Department of Industrial Accidents. Um, It seems like maybe once a month or more, I'll get a call from a postal worker or a federal employee, and I direct them to somebody like you. How come so few of my colleagues and myself are handling federal workers' compensation cases? I think the uh, short answer is just because attorneys are a smart group of people and they know what to avoid and what not to avoid. The major issue with federal employees is that the Federal Employees' Compensation Act, which governs this area, does not provide for any attorney's fees, and attorney's fees are not built into the statute. As such, the liability for any fee is solely and exclusively that of the employee. As a result, many cases are just not economically feasible uh, for attorneys to become involved. And I think that is the major deterrent to attorneys becoming involved. And is this by design? Yes, I, I think so. I think that attorneys have been legislated out of the process. At the time regulations were adopted, the mantra of those proposing the legislation was, we are going to have legislation that means more money for injured workers and less money for attorneys. Now, who is going to object to that kind of proposition and say, oh, no, 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 we'd prefer lawyers to get more money and injured workers to get less? The result is it's very difficult for injured federal employees to find effective representation. So what do they do? Well, many federal employees use their union representatives. Uh, Many federal employees are union employees. 
the largest single segment of federal employees are employees of the Postal Service. They have a very strong union representation, and uh, very often those representatives do a reasonable and effective job from a union perspective. However, uh, they are not attorneys, uh, and the more difficult issues can sometimes be quite complex. Okay. We're going to get back to your role as an attorney and attorneys in general in the process, but let's step back and let's define the terms and the procedural mechanisms. A postal worker or a federal employee hurts his or her back at work and workers' compensation benefits are not being paid. What does he or she do? And what are those benefits? Well, the the adjudicating body is the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs. Uh, that body is part of the Employment Standards Administration, which is part of the Department of Labor. It is a non-adversarial body. It is an adjudicator. So that the claim has to be submitted and the appropriate medical evidence, it's all the same kinds of factors on causal relationship, et cetera, that we see on a regular basis in our state practices. And at that point in time, a decision will come forth from OWCP. And is that as a result of an actual filing by the injured worker or the agency or both? The injured worker. There, there are time limits. There's a statute. There's a three-year statute of limitations in essence. Uh, there are different forms for traumatic injury versus occupational disease. And the employee has an obligation to file the claim. And once the claim is filed, the employing agency provides its information, the file goes on to OWCP, and the process starts from there. How many offices of OWCP are there? There are nine regions throughout the country, uh, all dealing with a particular region. Most of my experience is with Region 1, which covers New England. Uh, And that's located here in Boston? That is, right downtown at Government Center at the uh, uh, Department of Labor, yes. So what what are the benefits? Uh, Is it total disability, partial are there temporary limits, permanent limits? We don't have enough time in the program to uh, answer that question completely. But generally, the benefits are that an employee is entitled to 66 and two-thirds percent of his pay tax-free if no dependents. If there are dependents, it's 75 percent of his pay. Now, those are compensation benefits. There is another segment to the benefits of the Federal Employees' Compensation Act called continuation of pay, which is a different animal than compensation. And what is that? Is that uh, at the initial stage of a claim? Exactly. uh, Continuation of pay for the first 45 days of a federal employee's injury, his pay will be continued by his employing agency with the normal pay deductions and during that 45-day period. He will not, he or she will not shift over to compensation until after the 45 days is completed. What about medical treatment during those 45 days? Does that come under the workers' comp system or is that done through the injured workers' health insurance? It comes through the workers' comp system. So a claim has to be initiated in some fashion. Correct. You, You file the claim. Your first benefits are the 45 days of COP, continuation of pay. So your first 45 days, you're getting your, your, your full pay with deductions. It's thereafter that you will then receive the 66 and two-thirds percent uh, without dependents and 75 percent with dependents with medical benefits 
being paid for by OWCP, by the, by the Department of Labor. Now, what happens? Let's take it to a postal worker who injures his back. And for the first 45 days, he receives COP. After that, he receives 66 or 75 percent of his pay. How does the agency or the OWCP stop benefits? Do they have an independent medical evaluation? Do they have the right to unilaterally terminate? OWCP can request medical examinations as frequently as it so desires. And there has to be continuing documentation of the medical disability. And I assume that's the same as state workers' comp. It is. And with that documentation provided, the benefits will continue. Interestingly enough, the acceptance of a claim by OWCP is for a particular medical condition only. So if somebody injures his knee and as a result of walking uh, in an altered fashion starts to develop back problems, that can be a, another area that uh, a claim will have to be filed separately? Yes. The, the, an, an additional claim would be filed um, in a using a particular procedure to get that consequential injury allowed because the claim will be accepted for right knee sprain. If as a result of an altered gait, you now have a left knee problem, additional paperwork has to be filed to get that accepted. How long can a, a, an employee collect temporary disability, total disability benefits? Indefinitely. And how about partial disability? Let's assume the person is disabled. The letter carrier can't run a, uh, do a, walk a route or drive a route, and there is no inside work for that person. But the medical evidence suggests that he or she is capable of something. What happens to the level of disability at that point? between total or partial? Well, they're still paid their compensation for the time that they are not working. I think your question is, they have some work capability but no place to put them. That's right. That's not the injured worker's difficulty, and the injured worker will still receive their full compensation. All right. Let's, let's assume the agency has an independent medical evaluation. OWCP has a medical evaluation that suggests the worker can go back to work, and he or she doesn't, and their doctor suggests that they can't, and benefits stop. What's the process? If that person came to you, what do you do, and where does the process take you within the system? There is an interplay here between the employing agency and OWCP. Using a, a postal employee as an example, that if a worker is offered a light-duty position that is within the work restrictions, that OWCP feels is appropriate as a result of the medical evidence, and the agency offers that job, if the worker refuses suitable employment, they now stand to have problems, employment problems from the agency, and under their union contract, they could be terminated from employment and would have to go through a grievance procedure. There's a real interplay here between employment-related considerations and OWCP considerations. So let, let's assume benefits have stopped, and you file a claim on behalf of a, uh, an injured worker. What is the first step in the process? When do you first appear or have contact with OWCP, and who do you appear before? Well, first of all, you, you have to be designated as an authorized representative, and you have that is just a... Is it a form, like Social Security appointment of representative form? No, there's not a designated form. You can just send in a letter signed by the employee, I hereby authorize. Interestingly enough, uh, you do not have to be an attorney to be an authorized representative. I mean, there are many union representatives. There are consultants 
uh, out there across the country who are former OWCP employees who consult, um, although there are some pretty sophisticated legal issues that, that may arise. I was going to say, the, I can see the problem of unauthorized practice of law or some blurring of, this, of uh, roles here. That issue, I have not seen that issue arise. I think it's very, it's very interesting because there is a final appellate board. There are cases. There are precedents. There are case-setting procedures um, that the board uses uh, Larson's on workers' compensation as an authority, which I'm, I'm not sure how familiar laypersons might be with such well, that is, that is the treatise that uh, generically covers uh, workers' compensation across uh, jurisdictional lines. Okay, so you've, you've filed your letter of representation or notice of appearance. What, what happens next, and what's the time frame? Claims are supposed, to be, are supposed to be adjudicated within 45 days. OWCP is, I think the claims examiners, who are akin to ins- insurance adjusters, are very burdened. I think they have enormous caseloads in the multiple of hundreds. Timing and getting expeditious response is is a big problem. And is this response by mail or or some other contact like that? It has to be by mail. Uh, That if you call, claims representatives do not give out their phone numbers or their email addresses. You have to call into a main number and wait for a return phone call. One, One additional interesting matter is that OWCP has become paperless. So that if I am writing a letter to a claims examiner, who is across the street from me, my office in Boston, I have to send that letter to London, Kentucky, where it's scanned, entered into the file, and then accessed electronically by the claims representative. And that has presented, I think, it has some benefits, but it's presented some substantial difficulties also. Yeah, we're finding in Massachusetts our State Department of Industrial Accidents is going paperless within the next month or two, and we're starting to get used to it, those of us who do a Social Security practice, because more and more of the administrative law judges are requiring uh, all communications, even voluminous hospital records, to be scanned or uh, faxed to their scanning uh, machines and get into the file electronically. All right, what's the first proceeding that you might have to appear at? Uh, a hearing or pretrial conference or, or whatever. Uh, no such no such procedure. Uh, it, that the the claim will be adjudicated on its merits, paper wise. It will be accepted or denied. OWCP can ask for further development of medical evidence, which is very common, and ultimately will just issue a written decision. And at that point, there your options then develop from there. Okay, and what are the options? There are three options after a decision is made. Reconsideration, request for hearing, or appeal to the Employees' Compensation Appeals Board. Let's, let's talk about all three. Reconsideration, does it go back to the same claims examiner with new evidence, or does it go to somebody else? I, I, I believe it goes to a different claims examiner for reconsideration, or, and, and under certain circumstances, it may go to the same claims examiner. The reconsideration has... Is, is very liberal. New evidence or new legal argument, and that it's a very liberal standard. Also, reconsideration is indefinite or, or infinite. You can reconsider as many times as necessary. And when a claim is denied, the denial letter will tell you why and what is deficient. Reconsideration can be a very 
positive process to provide the additional information and, and get the claim allowed. Do you have to do the reconsideration before you can ask for a hearing? If you ask for reconsideration, if you ask for reconsideration, you forfeit your right to a hearing. Even if the reconsideration is denied? If the reconsideration is denied at that point, you then can only go to the Employees' Compensation Appeals Board. And that is a filing of, of briefs on the record? And is there – you're nodding, but yes. Yes, correct. Okay. That, is, that is correct. The hearing issue, there are a lot of strategic – Yeah, I was just going to ask you, what, what would make you decide to go for a hearing as opposed to a reconsideration? Well, a hearing is for a fairly straightforward claim where you, where you feel the record is complete and that the claims examiner may not be getting it for whatever reason – and that you feel that the, the, the issue is, is not an overriding issue that, that is a precedent-setting issue that would be more appropriate for the, for, for the Employees' Compensation Appeals Board. And are these hearings held in each region? Or do they, for example, if you're in a state where the region, regional office is two states away, uh, what is the burden in terms of traveling or having the hearing? You can submit on a written record. You don't necessarily have to appear. So that's the first thing. You can have an oral hearing or you can submit on the written record, whatever you so desire. Uh, it's just a consideration, a personal consideration as to what you feel may be appropriate. I might add that the hearings officer it is not from OWCP. They come from the branch of hearings and review, and they are trained hearings officers. So you're getting different people from OWCP. Do they have in-person hearings where the injured worker will give testimony? I know that frequently many cases that I have at the state level are denied and are litigated because the history in the medical records might be at variance with what my client is claiming to have happened. And the adjudicator, whether it's a state administrative judge in the workers' comp setting, uh, has to make a credibility determination as to what happened, where it happened, and how it happened. So I would assume that in postal workers or other federal employee cases, you may get a, a hospital or a medical record that says back pain, patient works doing lifting, but no history of recent injury or something like that. How do you get your client's statements or version of an event in front of whoever needs to make the final determination? Initially, it's all submitted in writing to OWCP and becomes part of the record, but you can also have your client or any other witnesses testify at the hearing. Interestingly enough, the agency is not allowed to participate at the hearing. The agency can come as an observer and can be requested to provide information should the hearings officer so desire, but they have no right to actually participate. Additionally, the hearing stays open for 30 days after the hearing is completed for additional evidence. And also, interestingly enough, new evidence can be submitted at the hearing. So it's not confined to the original record that was before OWCP. It's actually, in a lot of ways, a, an employee-friendly process. Okay. Well, at that point, especially hearing employee-friendly process, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with Attorney Dan Shapiro. We'll also talk about the case of the day as we put Dan to the test. We'll be right back. Workers' Comp Matters with attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news. 
talk, and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else. We'll be right back on the Legal Talk Network with more from our host, Attorney Alan S. Pierce, and his guest on Workers' Comp Matters, where we focus on the people and legal issues in workers' comp cases. Want to know more about Legal Talk Network host and attorney Alan S. Pierce? He's nationally known for his expertise in workers' comp and the law. Appointed by two governors to the State Workers' Compensation Advisory Council on the editorial board of the Journal of Workers' Compensation, leading lawyers across the country with a commitment beyond passion. Find out more about Attorney Pierce on the Legal Talk Network website under About Us. Well, welcome back. I'm here with Attorney Dan Shapiro. We've been talking about federal workers' compensation. We're going to deviate a little bit from our program to talk about our case of the day. Dan, I don't know if you've listened to other shows, but uh, what I uh, like to do is describe a recent, what I think is interesting workers' compensation case and put you on the spot a little bit and ask you to predict how the court in that particular case may have ruled. And I always try to caution that we have 50 states, we have the federal workers' comp system, and we have some other systems, and that the uh, decisions in one state aren't necessarily uh, binding on any other states and can be uh, quite at variance because of case law and statutory definitions. But I'm going to talk a little bit today about the case of Bender versus the Dakota Resorts Management Group. It's a South Dakota case, and it went to the South Dakota Supreme Court because Robert Bender was denied workers' compensation benefits by the industrial board in South Dakota. Now, Robert worked for the Deer Mountain Ski Area, and he was a lift operator. And the lift operators, as part of their employment, received 15-minute breaks in the morning, the afternoon, and they received a half-hour break for lunch. They did not punch out. They were on the clock. And the evidence at hearing revealed that it was common for the lift operators to take ski runs in their breaks. The date in question, Bender asked his supervisor if he could take a ski run during an afternoon 15-minute break. The supervisor consented, took over Bender's duties on his break, and while skiing down the hill, he fell and injured himself, and he brought a claim for workers' compensation benefits. The claim was denied because he was engaged in a a recreational activity outside his course of employment and that the case made its way to the South Dakota Supreme Court. Can you give us, uh, on limited facts like that, what you think the court did? Well, I'm an employee-friendly guy, and I would rule in favor of the employee on the basis, uh, on the concept of uh, condonement. If, if this were an activity that were both implicitly condoned by previous activity and also explicitly condoned by the supervisor at this time, I would think that the employee is entitled to benefits. And you uh, hit it right on the head. Not only did you uh, come up with the ruling of the South Dakota Supreme Court, but you pretty much hit uh, on the head exactly their rationale. They uh, noted that uh, they afforded the employees the opportunity to partake in these uh, activities, that skiing was common and accepted practice and a regular incident of employment, and that it derived uh, the employer derived direct benefit from the activity because it was an additional inducement to attract employees. Now, I would say that if this accident occurred in Massachusetts, the result might be different. Massachusetts, like many other states, has a particular 
section in our statute that says purely voluntary recreational activities are specifically excluded from coverage. And I'm involved in a case right now where I represented a uh, chaperone on a high school ski trip who was injured while skiing with her students and was denied workers' compensation because it was deemed to be a purely voluntary recreational activity. And our evidence that is currently before our reviewing board is that she was chaperoning. She was not while she was skiing, she had a walkie-talkie. She was watching these kids, making sure they didn't ski off trail and behave themselves. So uh, the issue in my case is, is it recreational activity? Uh, but in South Dakota, they apparently do not have such a limitation, and you are correct, despite the denial of benefits, the Supreme Court in South Dakota awarded benefits. So congratulations for getting that. Well, I think uh, based on that, I might go out and buy a lottery ticket today. <laughs> so hey, got that one. Right. Let's get back to federal employees and, and, and maybe dovetailing to this. We have various circumstances, and this is what has always fascinated me about workers' compensation. You think it's simple. You lift the box, you hurt your back. But people get hurt in a whole variety of ways, going to work, at lunch breaks, uh, going to the restroom, going out and picking up a sandwich for a coworker. Are there similar distinctions between, do they, does federal workers' comp recognize the general concept of arising out of and in the course of employment as a condition precedent to getting benefits? Absolutely. In that aspect, it's very similar to most state workers' comp schemes, the causal relationship issue, all the problems that you have with errands and recreation and horseplay and things of that nature all arise in federal comp. The exclusions for for compensation are willful misconduct, intent to injure, and intoxication. Those are statutory exclusions. And how about the going and coming rule? The postal worker who is driving to, uh, uh, to work and gets in a motor vehicle accident, covered or uncovered? Generally uncovered, generally. But as you know, I don't have to tell you, there are a huge range of circumstances there. And uh, whether or not his employer told him, on your way to work, stop by and pick something up or something of that nature, variety of permutations on that. And the available case law, if somebody wanted to research this, is what, ECAB, which I believe is Employee Compensation Appeals Board? The ECAB, the Employees Compensation Appeals Board, uh, up until recently, the biggest problem had been researching ECAB cases. I had to once. I couldn't even find them anywhere. <laughs> that, I think Suffolk Law School in Boston had some old volumes. There is now a website that has cataloged with a search engine. I think it's invaluable. It's called, uh, this, is, this is not a paid advertisement, but it's cyberfeds.com. And they provide the whole range of federal employee legal research from Merit Systems Protection Board to EEO, uh, and one segment of that is workers' compensation. And uh, the, the research capability has become significantly easier in, in the recent past. Well, we started talking today about why lawyers are not handling workers' compensation cases on the federal level. You're doing it. You talked about the uh, provisions about fees and the limitations of fees. I take it, first of all, there are no settlements in federal workers' comp cases. Is that correct? Uh, that, well, there, there, there is, in a limited circumstance, a provision for lump sum settlement on a uh, te- permanent, temporary, permanent, par- let's call it permanent partial disability. That's not the phraseology they use in the workers' comp scheme. There is a provision for it, but it's discretionary, can only be used in certain circumstances, and I think it's generally safe to say that there really are no lump sum payments, generally. 
Okay. And how do you how do you make a living handling these cases? Well, that's a real good question. Yes, that I think I'm selective in the cases in which I get involved. Uh, I have represented employees of the Postal Service primarily for many years. I've done a lot of their injury and compensation work. There are significant third-party claims that arise, especially for postal workers. And in the context of providing a full service to our clients for those third-party claims, I became involved in the workers' comp aspect, and I felt for full and complete representation that we should assist our third-party claimant clients in that regard. And that's how I got involved in it. I have become more involved, I've become very involved in the permanent partial disability award area. And is this a scheduled one-time award as opposed to a weekly benefit? Correct. There's a schedule award, and that's indeed what it's called, schedule award. There's provisions for it. If our listeners are, are primarily professionals and attorneys, the Federal Employees Compensation Act is at 5 U.S. Code 8101. The regulations are in 20 CFR Part 10. And we looked at those regulations, and uh, they're, they're unique. They're in a question-and-answer format. They're not in the usual bureaucratese uh, uh, regulation type of uh, verbiage. Absolutely. I, I think uh, there are a lot of complaints about OWCP, but the CFR regs are in an easy-to-read question-and-answer format, and these questions and answers are indeed the regulations themselves. So that makes it much easier to this, get involved. This is available online, CyberFed, or some other site? Well, I will say CyberFeds is the cataloging of the ECAB case law. I will say one thing about FECA work. Everything is online. The Department of Labor government website has an index of resources that has all the resources online. And in that regard, again, for professionals, there are OWCP has put out program memoranda. There are bulletins in transmittal forms in addition to the regulations and the statute. Additionally, OWCP has developed a procedure manual, which is an extensive manual of policy and procedure. It is the policy and procedure of OWCP, and that is online and is a wealth of information. Well, Dan, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Workers' Comp Matters. And those of you out there, I hope you join us soon for another show. Thanks for listening. I'm Attorney Alan Pierce. Go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by Attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.